Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. Go ahead and welcome us to the very last podcast of the year. So, this is your December 2022 edition of the Pre Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. I do want to thank ESO and Limmer Education for sponsoring us and making it possible for us to be here together. Thank you all for joining us live, those of you who are in the audience. And I would like to remind you before we get started that you can use your Zoom chat feature or your Q&A feature to ask questions as we go, and we're going to bring those into the conversation with us. So we are really excited today. I am Rimley Crow, and I'm joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, and Jeff Rollman. And we also are really excited today because we have with us the author, the lead author of our paper, Dr. Daniel Patterson. And the name of the article that we're reviewing is the Emergency Medical Services Sleep Health Study, a cluster randomized trial that was published in Sleep Health. And as always, this discussion is paired with an article in EMS World published by Dr. Tony Fernandez, and it's called Journal Watch. So I encourage all of you to check this out afterwards at emsworld.com under education and training. All right. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Patterson to the stage. Um, and first of all, thank you for sharing your time with us. I know it's a busy time of the year, and so we're very grateful to have you here with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So for those of uh, our audience who may not know you and all of your fabulous work, would you mind giving a quick introduction, who you are, what you do, and most importantly, how did you get interested in EMS research? Uh, well, I'm Daniel, and I am located at the University of Pittsburgh uh, in the beautiful city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is located Western PA. Um, we are fortunate enough in this area to have a lot of EMS. There's in the county, Allegheny County alone, there are 40 plus EMS agencies, sort of unlike anywhere else in the nation. Uh, so we have a lot of EMS, especially locally and regionally and statewide. So um, we do a lot of EMS-focused res research on a wide variety of topics. And long ago, 20 plus years ago, when I was a uh, graduate student, I received a phone call from the former chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine here at Pitt, Dr. Paul Paris. And I was on my way to UNC Chapel Hill to do my postdoc. And he says, I hear you're you're involved in EMS research, and I had just finished a uh, project with the South Carolina Rural Health Research Center that was funded by the Office of Rural Health Policy. And he says, "I want you to come up, you know, you know, and talk with us and see if there's any collaborations that we can have." And I said, "You know, thanks, thanks, but no thanks. I'm on my way to my fellowship. I'll look you up in a couple of years." And luckily, we reconnected literally a few years later. And he uh, hired me up to, to come up to Pittsburgh. And, you know, so the rest is history. In terms of my uh, interest in EMS, my uncle was a paramedic for about 15 years. And I remember doing ride-alongs with him in high school and then in my undergrad years. 
and just amazed at the stories that he would tell me of just some amazingly challenging calls, but also the challenges associated with the work, doing the actual job and how fatiguing it was and how challenging it was. And so my interest in EMS originated with him, a family member, and then I became an EMT and then a paramedic and decided to devote my, uh, you know, my interest, my research interest in EMS and the rest is history. It's funny how that call seems to come in and change our lives. And uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you still currently work some shifts as a paramedic and night shifts in particular. I do. Uh, I worked Friday nights. I, my last shift was this past Friday night. Um, I still work shifts uh, for a number of reasons. One, I still love taking care of patients. You know, the, the variety and uh, what you see in the field is st still of great interest to me. Uh, but also, most of my work is on focused on the health and well-being of the clinician. And I don't feel that you can really appreciate that burden on the clinician, on the body, and, you know, unless you are really experiencing it on a regular basis. So I try my best to stay up to date. In fact, today, right before we got on, I was filling out my annual uh command paperwork for my local medical director. I've got to get it in today. <laughs> um, so I'm taking pictures of all my licenses, my certification, my con ed over the year, et cetera, et cetera. So because um, my next shift is this Friday. So I still work. I still love it. Um, you know, my one of my big focus areas is night shifts and how that really impacts the health and well-being. So uh, you can't really know it unless you experience it. So I still do a lot of night shifts. Yeah. I love that. It speaks to the importance of having EMS clinicians do the research related to pre-hospital care, because there is that unique insight you get from when you're actually doing the work and you're in the mm -hmm. back of an ambulance and you're working all night. Uh, so I, I love that aspect of this. And we are going to talk a little bit about fatigue and sleepiness, as it turns out. I'm going to bring up a slide deck. We can use it or not use it. And for those of you who are in audio only mode, don't worry. We'll walk you through what's in it. Um, they're just the tables from the paper that we can refer to as needed. So we're going to test this out again. Let's see. 2022. I should be able to zoom. Here we go. <laughs> Let's test that. What do you see? We see it. Oh, man. Now we're we're doing it. I seem to have lost all my people. I can't see people anymore, but that's okay. All right. So this study, uh, the Emergency Medical Services Sleep Health Study, is part of a bigger study. It was a cluster randomized trial. Uh, first, I want to congratulate you on this excellent study. I know it's a really big project, and it's part of an even bigger project called the EMS Fatigue Project. So perhaps you could just walk us through a little bit. You know, what is the EMS Fatigue Project and where this particular part of the project fit in? Okay. So, you know, there's a big history behind this work. Um, so you know, early 2015, 2016, um, we, my team and I wrote a grant, including the National Association of State EMS officials, our partners, Kathy Robinson, Dia Gaynor, uh, we collaborated on an application, a uh, call for applications from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA. And they had put out this call for applications and we submitted it together and luckily we got funded. And it was a massive project they're in three phases. The first phase was to do a massive evidence-based review, review of the literature to address a multiple fatigue mitigation questions. Uh, and then we did that. That was published in 2018 in a special issue of PEC. 
And then we immediately transitioned to the second phase, which was to conduct an experimental study where we actually tried to test one of the recommendations, one or more of the recommendations that resulted from phase one. And the one that was the most feasible Da, 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 is education and training, right? The rest of them are really challenging to try to implement. So, uh, you know, we can talk about that for uh, fill up a whole uh, session on, on the challenges associated with all these different recommendations. But in terms of uh, feasibility, we chose to test education and training and whether or not it had an impact on some sleep and fatigue related outcomes. And so we embarked on that in 2018. We just finished it and published it uh, in the Sleep Health Journal. Phase three was led by uh, a different organization, a contract organization, where they actually created a um, fatigue model, a, a statistical model that is embedded in the background of, an, of a computer interface, an application, where you can punch in different shift schedules and get some feedback on whether or not those are really, really fatiguing for workers who engage in that schedule. That work was led by the Office of Behavioral, Sa uh, Behavioral Research um, Institute, I'm sorry. Uh, and all that work, all that work is available at emsfatigue.org, www.emsfatigue.org, which is maintained the website by the National Association of State EMS Officials. Yeah, all of this work is so important. And I think and we're not always great at communicating when these big projects come out. So it's really great that you just gave that URL. Um, for those who haven't checked out the fatigue guidelines, they're really well written and really important information in there. And I mean, most importantly, let's talk about caffeine. I'm safe to keep drinking coffee, right? I just, you know, the timing is, unremark is remarkable. You just, you <laughs> said that and I immediately took a drink without even any prompting. So there yeah, you go. See, it was in our brains. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, this is, this is the really important piece where we put evidence behind things like is, you know, is it safe to drink caffeine mm -hmm. to help mitigate fatigue when, you know, sometimes we don't get to control the shift and sometimes we don't control how the shift goes for sure. Right. Um, so definitely to our audience, check those out. We are going to dive into this part two study today, but part one is really important as well. Um, so this particular study you mentioned, we're looking at the education intervention. That was what was feasible. So the goal of this particular study was to determine whether providing that targeted education intervention impacts key measures of sleep quality and fatigue. Um, so before we dive into the methods, and I'll bring Dr. Tony Fernandez to join us, um, let's talk about why does this matter? What really prompted this whole project or prompted at least this portion of the project? Why should we be studying sleep and fatigue in EMS? Well, we, we know from, I don't know how many dozens of studies and some of them, you know, peer reviewed, others uh, not peer reviewed, but still provide a lot of anecdote for, you know, decades, we have come to the realization that the job is fatiguing, right? Mm -hmm. When you disrupt your normal circadian biology, meaning we want to be awake during the day and sleep at night. When you disrupt that, you inevitably create a fatigue and sleep debt or sleep loss situation, which can impact our performance, can impact our health. Well, the job requires that we engage in this shift work, which would disrupt our normal circadian biology, which in downstream impacts are significant. The literature suggests that it impacts our performance. You know, obviously that would have a potential impact on our patients and also our safety as well. Uh, and then our health. You know, you know, probably one of the more uh, important things to me 
is how this is uh, cumulatively impacting our workforce over time and how it's accelerating you know, potential uh, conditions, uh, cardiovascular disease being one. And um, you know, given those outcomes and given the inevitable that we are sort of accelerating problems by engaging in the shift work that is involved in EMS, we are uh, compelled. You know, we really are compelled to figure out, well, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to protect our workforce? How are we going to protect our patients? Uh, education and training is just one of many strategies that we can uh, uh, include in a fatigue mitigation or safety management system platform. Uh, and the reason, one of the reasons why we made this the focus of the study was, again, this was one of the recommendations that came out of that large evidence review. There is ample evidence to support education and training as a positive, having a positive impact on key indicators of sleep, health, and quality. Absolutely. And something that you noted in the introduction of this paper that I think is important is that, okay, maybe there are some courses out there related to sleep and fatigue, but nothing specific to the environment mm -hmm. of pre-hospital care. And we know that this is a really unique space. And so you know, the evidence would suggest that having something specifically tailored to this environment is really important. And that's precisely what this study sets up for. Yeah, we, we spent the first 18 months of this phase of the study developing the education materials. I mean, we, we, we spent so much time laboring over not only the content, but also the, the method and the delivery and the timing and the duration of each of these modules and the content. You know, we modeled the content after what experts in occupational medicine and sleep and fatigue would recommend. In particular, all the components of our 10 module program was tightly tied to the American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine's recommendations for fatigue mitigation. And we consulted with numerous sleep health physicians, experts in fatigue management, uh, and had uh, interviews and quotes and commentary from these individuals in video form in the material itself. So you, you don't actually see us as talking heads. You don't see you know, boring PowerPoints you know, through, you know, you see a, a mix of, of content from sleep scientists, from sleep medicine physicians, fatigue experts, individual clinicians. We actually have interviews and testimonies from paramedics, EMTs, firefighters who give their story, you know, and their, and their context into the material. And we wove all that together into a 10 module program. And each module is about 15 minutes long. So very short. You know, we, we, we know, as, as we all know, you know, our attention span is quite short <laughs> and the time that we have available for, for anything is, is short, but also we, we didn't want it to make it boring. You know, there are numerous resources out there tailored to other occupations. I'll give you nursing, for example, the Centers for Disease Control, NIOSH, a division of CDC, they have a program tailored to nursing. Well, we looked at it and we met with the people who developed it. And it was just not set up and it wasn't tailored to EMS. So we said, you know, we just can't take what you created off the shelf and just plop it in front of EMS individuals and it be digestible and attractive. So again, we spent the first 18 months really laboring over the intervention itself. Absolutely. And then those 18 months get condensed into one paragraph or two, maybe in the <laughs> manuscript. Right. Exactly. Uh, 
So with that, let's talk about the methods. I'm going to bring Tony on. Tony, come join us and let's dig into how the study was set up before we get to the results. I know, I know people are here for the results, but it's really important to talk about how well the study was set up so that we know, well, what should we make of these results? So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Tony. Thank you. And Dr. Patterson, I just want to thank you again for joining us today. Um, I think this is a really interesting study and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So um, I want to start off, uh, as, as we often do, can you um, give us an idea of, as you went into the study, what was your study hypothesis and uh, uh, the objective of the study? And can we uh, describe that for our audience? Yeah, so we hypothesized that those who received this, edu this tailored education training would actually have a more positive uh, or you know, positive impact on their sleep quality and fatigue at the end of a three-month period. Uh, and we can get into the details of the duration shortly. But um, you know, we believe that, yeah, the delivery of this information in the form that we created would actually have a positive impact, uh, on, on mainly on two key indicators, uh, in particular, sleep quality measured by the PSQI, which is the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, another reason, another great reason to be in Pittsburgh. Uh, Dr. Bicey, who is a sleep medicine scientist and one of my common, very frequent colleagues, because he is the expert in this stuff, um, he developed it back in 1989, and it's the most widely used measure of sleep quality. It's a survey instrument. And then we had some other uh, fatigue-related indicators that we looked at as well. But we believe, we hypothesized that, yeah, you, you deliver this information to you know, some subjects, EMS individuals, uh, that, yeah, it, it should have a positive impact. You know, that was our hypothesis. And our objective was, obviously, to deliver this so that it would be uh, in a, in attractive you know, uh, in a form that could be digestible and very feasible. Uh, and again, going back to the development of the intervention uh, that informed our objective, but we want, we want to improve sleep quality, sleep health, reduce fatigue. We know, and I wanna, I wanna point this out, I'm gonna say this over and over again. We have to manage fatigue, we cannot eliminate it. Okay, you, we cannot get rid of it. <laughs> There's no feasible way to do that, okay? Fatigue is, is inherent in everything that we do. No matter what your occupation is, you're gonna get tired. But we can do things to maybe lessen the, the significance of it or to mitigate it as best as possible. So while we sought to improve sleep health and sleep quality as our main overall goal and objective here, um, we, we have, we're grounded in reality that we're not gonna get rid of it, okay? What an important point, and thank you for uh, emphasizing that. Um, so as we all see on on our screen right now, uh, the, the title involves the words, uh, a clustered randomized trial. And um, uh, at a really high level, uh, I, I want to see if you can kind of describe to our audience uh, what cluster randomization is and, and why you thought it was important for this study in particular. So, uh, as we all know, uh, when we work in the field, we are affiliated with a particular organization. And many of us know that every organization is a little different. You know, we may follow the same protocols for the most part, but we all have a little bit different culture from organization to organization. Uh, it's just the reality, right? Uh, so given that, then the way that people behave and learn and act and, and, and et cetera uh, in these organizations is probably similar in clusters, right? Uh, and so what we did was we knew that because of those factors, we needed to not do this as an individualized randomization, that we needed to sort of take into account that clustering because 
potentially more than one individual who signs up for the study might be affiliated with the same organization, All right? So um, we basically invited EMS agencies first. Okay, we went out and said, EMS agency directors, chiefs, managers, et cetera, if you want to take part in this study, then let us know, sign up, go through a screening procedure to determine if you're eligible or not. Um, and if you are, we will give you instructions to pass on to your crew members who can then individually be screened and sign up for the study to take part in this. Uh, and so that's sort of the clustering and reason why we have clustering. And then once an agency is signed up, they are randomized to either the intervention group, which means in this particular study, a cluster randomized trial, uh, the one phrase that we weren't able to add to the title because the journal said it's too long of a title was weightless control. And we're gonna get into that, right? So in, in, agencies and individuals within the agencies who were randomized to the intervention group actually received access to the education materials via an online format immediately. And those who were randomized to the control group or the comparison group, which is called the waitlist control group, uh, they had to wait. They had to wait three months before they actually gained access to the material. Okay, so everybody got access. Everybody got access to the materials. It's just at different times. Yeah, and I think it was a really interesting study design. Um, and thanks for that explanation. I think that was really clear. Uh, and I think that'll help a lot of folks on, on who are listening. Um, so let's talk about, uh, you, you said you started with the agencies and then you went down and, and tried to recruit some folks uh, who were working within those agencies. How did you get to them? Can, can you talk to us about how you recruited them and kind of who was eligible and, and the like? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, we, we have a contact individual a point of contact at each agency. And that's a manager, a shift supervisor who was designated by the director or the chief as being our, our point of contact. Sometimes it was the chief, him, him or herself. Uh, so once we got contact with them, we asked them to distribute the study flyer, uh, e mainly came in an email form, uh, post the paper flyer in high traffic areas, et cetera, sort of the typical way you kind of recruit individuals. Um, and individuals would basically go to a link uh, on our website and go through a screening procedure. Uh, and the actual details of the eligibility, um, you know, I'm, sorry, I'm, not, I'm trying to look at it because <laughs> I haven't looked at it in a little bit here, but uh, essentially we wanted to recruit up to, um, you know, 50 people per agency. And the, the numbers that I'm, I'm, I'm spouting out here, uh, for, you know, 40 total agencies across the nation, 20 in the waitlist group, 20 in the in the uh, intervention group, and then up to 50 people per agency was our goal. That was based on a power calculation, uh, a predetermined power calculation by our statisticians that allowed us to, at the three-month mark, to see a clinically meaningful difference in sleep quality at that point in time. And so the details of that are very complicated, but you know, those are the numbers that we sought after was we really want to get to 50 people per agency. That's our goal. We really want to get to 20 agencies in each group. That's our goal. Um, you know, and as, as most things go, we didn't exactly get to that point. We had some agencies that did really well, that got to 50 really easily in terms of their uh, uh, individual agency level enrollment. We had others who did not. Um, and there's numerous factors, for, you know, related to that. It, it can be time commitment, it can be a number of different things. And the other 
you know, sort of wrench thrown into our system <laughs> is the pandemic. <laughs> uh, just FYI, doing a study, a field study, especially of this complicated nature during a pandemic, not easy. Not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> Euro stars, don't advise. Not, not easy, okay. Um, but yeah, the, the, there's the numbers I'm throwing out here. Uh, you know, 20 per group was our was our goal. We got to 36. We got close. Uh, 50 per agency was our goal. We got close in a lot of agencies. Some met the the number. Others did not. Uh, we actually had to cut the enrollment time period short from the direction of our funder. So NHTSA said. We're giving you until this time period. If you don't meet it, then you just got to uh, terminate the study early. And that's what we had to do. Yeah, yeah it was it was tough times for sure. I, and I just want to um, just emphasize in your recruitment, you were able to recruit a, a diverse population in terms of shift length. Um, and so it wasn't just 24 hours. You had 12 hours in there. You had a whole bunch of different shift lengths to make some comparisons on. And I, I, I think I thought that it was really smart, but I, I do want I think it's important to kind of uh, talk to our audience about why volunteers were specifically not included um, in this study. Yeah, so we did not uh, include volunteer based agencies um, because, you know, the nature of their interaction with their services is, is complicated. It's not that it's any less significant, but, you know, they may not work as many shifts, right, as our target population. You know, our targeted population here was to try to be, you know, EMS is very diverse, very diverse. So to say that we wanted a homogeneous population is sort of a weird statement in EMS, right? But we wanted to make it as as, as homogeneous as possible, meaning we didn't want uh, volunteer agencies because they're unique. The It's hard to control for their full-time ver job versus their volunteer job, those sorts of things. Uh, they're definitely worthy of investigation on these topics, but it just so happens that after discussion with our, all of our investigators that we, we wanted to hone in on paid services primarily. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that was very smart and uh, made for a, a much uh, cleaner analysis to interpret uh, for sure. Um, so you talked about some of the, the, the time and effort that went into making these courses and uh, you, you ended up having 10 training courses and a whole uh, gamut of, of sleep and fatigue related topics. So I see some that are hazards of fatigue and sleep physiology and you know, just to name a couple um, and the all important uh, managing fatigue was in there as well. Um, we, we talked a little bit about this before, but can you give us some more idea about how these were accessed to, uh, by folks and, yeah. and how, how these trainings were delivered? Yeah, so um, we created these modules in the frame of, or the format of a learning management system. So most EMS individuals are, are familiar with LMS type courses. Uh, you know, it's delivered on uh, an internet platform kind of thing. You have, a, you have to access it via a password, username, password, et cetera. You get kind of credit for it, right? Um, so given that most of our target population were familiar with that format, that's sort of the format we stuck with. And so we created these modules in a software program that allowed us to export the videos, the content. They had little quiz questions in there. You know, we, we mixed all this together in an LMS format. Again, about 15 minutes per module. There's 10 total modules covering a wide variety of topics. Um, and we 
hosted it on a secure server here at the University of Pittsburgh. And so those individuals who actually signed up received um, a unique username and password. And if they wanted to access the modules, they could you know, punch in their username and password on our website and then gain access to those modules and they could watch them you know, as many times as they wanted to. And they could get Con Ed credit. So we were able to uh, work with CAPSI, uh, with Nasimso and CAPSI, to gain approval for a little over two hours of Con Ed credit to, for those who wanted it. Not everybody wanted it because, you know, depending on what kind of system you work in, I can remember when I was in North Carolina, all of my Con Ed came through my agency, right? And I, I didn't have to worry about my individual efforts to go get Con Ed. Here in Pennsylvania, it's different. I have to actually individually be in control of my own Con Ed. And so I need to keep track of the hours I get. I need to document it. I need to present it to my medical director at the end of the year, like right now, for example. Um, so uh, not everybody applied for the Con Ed credit. A lot of folks did, though. Yeah. Yeah. And how great is that to get Con Ed and, and participate in research study at the same time? That was, that was <laughs> really great that you were able to do that. Yeah. Which again is no easy task either to uh, get your courses ready for and to approve for Con Ed. I mean, that's I commend you for all the work you put into this. This was oh, no, thanks. no easy task. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit. I'm, I'm going to move on. I know people are chopping at the bit to get get to the the results of the study, <laughs> um, but I do. There's two more things that I want to bring up. To, I think it'll help contextualize things. So we talked a little bit about the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index um, and 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 how popular that is. Uh, how important that is in term in, in sleep studies. I mean, um, but you did use some other uh, sleep scales as well, which you mentioned the Epworth sleepiness yeah. scale and um, and the uh, the fatigue uh, Chandler fatigue questionnaire. Um, why did you think it was important to not just look at the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, but to look at these others as secondaries? So these other measures, such as the Epworth sleepiness scale, the um, um, Childer fatigue questionnaire the um, OFER, the Occupational Fatigue and Recovery Scale. Uh, these survey tools have been used in a wide variety of studies. And I've used them over and over and again in my studies. So we have some, some base rate or some comparison data from these different uh, measures. And you know, while we may not have, the thought, the thought was, while we may not have an impact on PSQI, our, our main outcome of interest, we may have an impact on other indicators of fatigue. And you know, for those of you in the audience, there is no gold standard measure of fatigue, okay? There's no blood assay yet, <laughs> okay? So we don't have a biomark. Well, you know, people are working on this. Okay, we don't have a gold standard biomarker, but we have some emerging ones. Um, but we don't have a blood test. We don't, we don't have an obje a truly objective measure. Most of what we rely on for assessing sleep health, sleep quality, fatigue is all based on self-report. Sadly, you know, some of these tools uh, have some questionable reliability and validity. And, and just so happens, one of the efforts that we completed as a part of the phase one was to review all these different scales and to provide the EMS community with some confidence if they picked up the OFER or the, the uh, PSQI or the child fatigue questionnaire or these other tools that they could have confidence as to whether or not they had some reliability and validity behind them. And so we met, we chose a menu of, of items. We couldn't include all of them because the burden obviously on the individual would be significant. Sure. So we chose the ones that we had some comparison data for and that made some sense as secondary, primary or secondary outcomes. 
That's great. And finally, last thing, um, I think we need to go into really, again, really high level, similar to what you did with the cluster randomization. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about um, why you chose an intention to treat analysis um, and, and then a little bit about what it means when we're talking about your intention to treat versus your per protocol results? No, good questions. So yeah, we, we've heard of this thing called intention to treat analysis. It's almost like onomatopoeia. What does that mean? Right. Um, so in randomized studies, uh, when we randomize individuals or groups into the intervention or the control, which is the most simple form of randomization here, um, we hope and pray, fingers crossed, that, you know, when they go into these groups, that they behave as, in, as re, you know, requested, uh, that things uh, proceed as envisioned. Right. And at the end, when we compare them, that we have confidence that only those in the intervention group had exposure at a time period uh, to the intervention and and those in the in the waitlist group uh, did not have exposure or the comparison group uh, to the intervention materials. And when we go to compare them, we can truly feel confident that, you know, if there's any signal, any difference in the outcomes that we can attribute that to you know what they were exposed to or what they were not exposed to or what they were given versus not what they were not given regardless of what happens regardless of how they behave if they deviate from protocol or not because remember we did randomize them you know we we assigned them to a group right and so if you assign them to a group then you need to treat them that way intent to treat so when the intention was you do this over here in this group and you do this over here in this group and we're going to analyze you that way no matter what you did, no matter if you obeyed protocol or not. And that's the cleanest, sort of most common way that we compare data from a, a trial. Uh, and then, you know, then we deviate <laughs> or we go to our second analysis, which is, okay, wait a minute. How did they actually behave, yeah. right? How many adhered to protocol? How many actually did what we asked them to do? And maybe they only did it a little bit. And maybe a, a lot, you know, that's a per protocol or some call it as treated analysis. And those are typically the second uh, approach to looking at data from a trial compared to the primary approach. So the primary here, again, is intent to treat. So they, we, we, we analyze data as, as intended. And then we go look at their individual behaviors and say, okay, did you adhere to protocol or not? And then we look to see, oh, wow. Uh, we may have not seen a difference in the intent to treat because people deviated or didn't follow protocol or whatever. But when we look at them in a different way, the one based on protocol, do we actually see any differences? And that's and that's, that's typical or common for a lot of field-based trials, that those two approaches. Yep, it sure is. And that was a, a great explanation. That was exactly what I was looking for. So thank you for that. I, I, we are ready to get to results, but before we open the floodgates, I, I, I just want to let, let our other panelists get a chance to ask some questions if they have specific methods related questions. Um, and I see Jeff popping up here. So uh, Dr. Patterson, thank you very much. I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to moving on and talking about your results. Great questions. Thank you. First off, thank you, Dr. Patterson, for sharing this Terrific research, definitely very impactful as we talked about in the introduction um, and truly awesome work that you've done here. Just have a quick question, um, kind of putting this in context before we talk about results. We talked about 
randomization and the different agencies that uh, received this treatment intervention initially and then later. Um, I was curious if you could just talk a little bit more about the blinding um, potentially, since we know that folks sometimes act a little bit differently if they know that they're being researched, if they're being studied. And obviously with this, they are being asked all these questions, so they know it's going right. somewhere. Um, but I was curious what both the agency level and the EMS clinician level, what all they knew about this, um, if they knew this was going to get published and an amazing paper later on. Um, is this something that agencies maybe just thought of as a pre-con ed opportunity? Um, I was wondering if you could just speak briefly about sort of how much the agencies and clinicians knew about uh, what was taking place, because that could certainly impact um, whether they responded and partook in the um, different modules as well as their answers. No, you you know you're right. You you raise great questions and observations here about blinding. Um, Field-based experimental studies are very difficult to do and to maintain blinding, especially in the format of, or the design that we had. So when an agency signed up and we did the randomization, we sent them the instructions on what was next. And if they paid close attention, they knew which group they were in, all right, from the very beginning. Okay, so we could not ensure complete blinding, all right? Now we did what we could within, you know, within what was feasible to maintain sort of as much blinding as we could in terms of, oh, you know, you're not going to get uh, the education materials until this time. But if, if we have, you know, sort of savvy, non-distracted individuals, whether they be the agency directors and chiefs who were our point of contact or the individuals who signed up themselves, they could figure it out. Okay, not everybody did. I mean, we got some comments from folks that they sort of knew what was going on, but uh, we don't have systematically a major concern that everyone who was randomized to the waitlist group knew exactly what was going on. We don't have that that concern, although we we know that some knew that. Um, but we could not ensure 100% blinding, whether it be the individuals or our crew or our team members. You know, if we did, that'd be called double blinding, where we would be blinded. And we wouldn't know which agency or individual was in which group, and the individuals themselves wouldn't know. Well, that's 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 not possible with this kind of design. Uh, single blinded, meaning the individuals uh, wouldn't know where they were. We tried our best to adhere to that as best as possible, but we couldn't ensure it completely. So yes, some probably knew exactly which group they were in, and whether or not they chose to stay in the study once they learned that. We don't know exactly because when someone would leave, they wouldn't just basically call us up and say, hey, I found out I was in the waitlist group. See you later. Right. We didn't we didn't get that kind of communication. Um, but what we do know is that withdrawal attrition, you know, when people sign up and then leave, whether it be we lost, we can't get, communicate with them anymore or they voluntarily said, you know what, we're out of here. Uh, that did not differ by group. So. If it differed, meaning we had a substantially more individuals in the comparison group, the waitlist group, leave versus the rate in the intervention group, then you could probably point with some significant confidence that, yeah, the the, the lack of blinding was a major factor. But uh, we didn't see that. Okay. 
Um, so yeah, that was a challenging thing to deal with, especially in this kind of study, trying to in, invoke any kind of blinding was, was a major challenge. Um, but our key indicator here to give us some solace that that wasn't a major factor is that there was no differential difference in the withdrawal attrition rate. Yeah. Excellent, excellent point. That was a heck of a job, definitely. <laughs> Realizing that and controlling for that and doing their best. All right. I mean, I could talk about methods all day, but I know that there will be either mutiny or mass exodus if I choose to do so. <laughs> However, for those who are looking at the time wondering, let me assure you that in the bento box of research, methods are your main dish. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to spend time on those. It's really important to understand where the research came from before we decide whether or not, you know, how we should take these results and if we should apply them to our own settings. Um, so with that, I'm going to move us forward a little bit and remind the audience you can participate and ask questions as we go. Um, so moving into figure one, this is typically the diagram where we flow through who we included, who got excluded, who stayed, who went, all of those things. Uh, but the short Summary here is 50 agencies were screened, which is no easy task in and of itself. 48 were deemed eligible. And then 36 ultimately enrolled, 16 of whom got randomized to an intervention and 20 to that waitlist control group. Uh, so I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Patterson, tell us a little bit about anything we should know about these agencies. And then I have something that stuck out to me as really important here. Yeah, so, um, you know, Again, our goal here was 40 uh, agencies with 50 people per agency, right? Um, and you, as you can see, we just came underneath that 40. Again, the study was terminated early by the funding agency. So if we if we maybe had six more months uh, to fulfill the study, maybe we would have gotten to 40, who knows? Uh, but again, the enrollment goal was 50 per agency. You can see in those sort of first few cells there in terms of the allocation, that we had on average around 20 per cluster, 20 per agency in the intervention group. And then if you look over to the comparison group, which is sort of the, the non-shaded arm to the right, you can see that we had 18 per cluster. So we were sort of similar in terms of the mean per agency or per cluster uh, in the beginning. And then again, our first time point of interest here is three months. So you can see the next cells down talk about uh, the three-month follow-up, and that was our main time period of interest. And going back to uh, the methods here, we chose three months because the main outcome of interest, PSQI, is grounded in someone reflecting on their previous 30 days, all right? So we just can't say, we're going to follow you for a week and then reassess PSQI. You can't do that because right. the, the instruments are not developed for that. The instruments are developed for 30-plus days. We chose three months because the previous literature that we modeled a lot of our confidence on, and meaning that you know we knew that if you deliver education and training, two to three months later, you should see a potential impact. And so based on that systematic review of the previous evidence, we chose three months as sort of our time point to potentially see an impact here. Uh, and you know, you can't go on forever because people lose interest, right? So you gotta you gotta be very judicious in your time period here. And that a number of factors go into that. So at three months, uh, you know, you can see that we lost some individuals, uh, about 2.4 individuals per cluster in the intervention group, about 2.6 in the control group. So not really no major differences there in terms of uh, attrition, okay? Um, and then you can see, you know, how many individuals, you know, we get into the as treated versus 
uh, per protocol analysis, you can see how many individuals actually engaged with the intervention materials themselves. You know, the one thing about research is it's volunteer, right? We're, we're not going to hold your hand or your feet to the fire and say, thou shalt do this or else, right? That's not how research works. The IRB um, would have a problem with that. <laughs> they would probably put me in IRB jail for sure. <laughs> um, so while we, while we, you know, have confidence that individuals who sign up probably have some interest in what we're doing, we can't guarantee that they will follow per protocol. So you can see in these boxes, we do indicate where individuals actually viewed the materials or not, okay? And it's not everybody, okay? Not everybody viewed the materials. Uh, so that's that's the one challenge associated with doing field research, yeah. Absolutely. And, and you know, not to bring it back up again, but doing this during a pandemic when Zoom fatigue was real, maybe we need some Zoom fatigue guidelines after all of this. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a challenge to get people to participate in virtual education at a time when you know, demands were high and we were all kind of tired of sitting and watching virtual things. Yes, absolutely. You, you definitely uh, raise an important issue. The sad thing was, is we started recruitment before shutdown. Right. And we actually shut down recruitment from March of 2020 all the way until June, July. So we weren't actually collecting or enrolling any new organizations or individuals during that time period. Right. That, that's just yeah. an extra challenge to what's already, you know, a tough study design. And it's hard sometimes to get people to volunteer their time to do these things. So yeah. I think it's still impressive what happened and what we do get to see from this. Now, I like to highlight table one always just because that's our gut check. Did randomization work, right? Mm -hmm. So do we see if the intervention and the control arms are similar? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't see too many differences here, but something in the similarities that I found maybe alarming, um, but this was the thing I wanted to bring up is that two thirds had no formal fatigue management program. Mm -hmm. And I, that's, you know, that seems really low to me, but I, I'm curious, what did you find about those who did have fatigue management programs? Did they provide any detail on what kinds of things were happening? Because I like to look for the pockets of excellence where we can find them. Um, yeah, you, you know, that's a good observation. Uh, and, you know, I'm actually leading another trial right now, another field-based trial uh, funded by NIOSH. And we have over 106 agencies enrolled. It's a much bigger study. Um, and the vast majority self-report no formal fatigue management program. Now, the ones who did, you know, we asked them, okay, can, can you describe it? Most of them didn't provide a lot of detail. Some of it was, oh, you know, um, uh, no using your cell phone at this time period while with patients or something like that. Um, you can't work a certain number of shifts back to back, or, you, you know, we cap the number of hours of continuous work at this. You know, they're very uh, restricted uh, programs. They're not what I would call comprehensive type uh, yeah. programs that include multiple uh, uh, components and programs and interventions and elements that you would probably characterize as a program, right? right? right. Uh, right. It was more or less maybe a policy here, a policy there that really constituted you know, their, their, their program. Yeah. Which is even more alarming when you think two thirds had no program and the third that did, maybe it wasn't that comprehensive. And right. so that speaks to the importance of reading. There are guidelines and suggestions and things that we can do about this. 
Um, it also speaks to another measure. I know we didn't really highlight this one and it wasn't the point of this study, but would perhaps make a good area for future study. You know, we talk about the EMS safety attitudes questionnaire. And for those who don't know, Dr. Patterson is super humble, but he's the one who really brought this to EMS and adapted it to EMS. So we can look at things like safety culture. And I can imagine that having a robust fatigue program would probably positively impact safety culture. Uh, so that's something for us just to keep in mind. It wasn't the goal of this study, but certainly all of these things are, are deeply intertwined. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, I, I do want to get to the like drum roll moment and let's talk about, you know, so what did you find? What's our, what were our key takeaways? Let's talk about the primary outcome first. What did we okay, see? So, right. And so the primary outcome is PSQI, the sleep quality mm -hmm. measure. Uh, no surprise that a vast majority of those who were involved as individuals suffered from poor sleep quality. Okay. <laughs> Myself too. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, it's, it's very pervasive, very pervasive uh, throughout the EMS industry. Okay. Um, in terms of the intent to treat, uh, when we compare changes from zero at baseline to three months, we did not see a dramatic change in the intervention group or the comparison group, okay? So that was a little bit, you know, um, unsatisfying, you know, but we go back to a lot of the factors that are at play here, pandemic, um, you know, the vast majority are suffering from poor sleep quality. Uh, the thought that a single intervention is potentially gonna have a major clinically meaningful impact is a little bit probably ambitious, but you know it's worth trying because you know you, you you can't leave it alone. You just can't do nothing. So starting off with what's feasible, which mean, meaning education and training, that's where we began with this study. And what these data would suggest in terms of the intent to treat analysis, that we don't see a difference in the sleep quality between the two groups at three month mark, is that sleep quality number one very pervasive. And number two, making a meaningful impact on that is probably going to take something more than just education and training. Yeah. And I, you know, it's so common that when we find that, that moment of ugh, no significant difference, right. That it's, it's common that these studies don't even get published. I think it's so important that this work was published, which is not easy either. We talk about how hard it is to get not just the manuscript ready for publication to summarize 18 months of work in a paragraph to go through the peer review process and respond to reviewers and to do all of that, to show us, Hey, no significant difference. It speaks really highly of this research team. It's really important and it speaks highly of the journal for choosing to show this doesn't mean that the study wasn't meaningful. This is actually extraordinarily meaningful in my eyes because it tells us where we need to look next and what could be the drivers behind this because my guess is the things that this research team faced are not unique and that we would face these in our own EMS agencies if we were to just try to roll out an education intervention. Um, and yeah. one of the things that stuck out to me, you talked about oh, there's these drivers and we can identify a bunch of them that probably contributed to this result. But we talk about that adherence. That piece was really important. Very few, or maybe not very few, but fewer than we would have liked for sure, adhered all the way through the modules. Mm -hmm. And it's my understanding that it was actually the last module that had the action items for how to, how to better your sleep quality. And that's the one, you know, I would have hypothesized that's the one that's gonna have the effect. So a lot of people didn't make it to that part of the intervention. Right. And uh, if you want to scroll to one of the other graphs for the per protocol analysis, uh, you know, we had 10 modules. Okay. 
Um, uh, is there one with the slope? Do you have that one yeah, in there? There we go. Okay, here we are. Okay. So while we are- uh, This is figure five for those who are following along. Yeah, figure five. So while we were disappointed in the intent to treat analysis findings, meaning that you know as, as intended, they were randomized to waitlist control or intervention, and we treated them as such, no matter what they did, at three months. When we actually look deeper into a per protocol analysis and look at those who actually watched the modules, and then how many modules did they watch, right? Um, yeah. Those who actually watched more modules, you know, the high number of modules, seven, eight, nine, 10 modules, they actually, on average, had a more positive impact on their sleep quality and their self-reported fatigue. It may have not been clinically meaningful, but the dose is something to pay attention to here. You know, sort of like a dose response relationship. And it just also speaks to, they probably got more information that could help them in their unique situation from those materials, and maybe they changed some of their behaviors, their personal behaviors, to improve their sleep quality at least a little bit. Now, did no one receive or have a, a clinically meaningful difference in uh, their sleep quality at the end of the three months? No, we actually had some. We, we actually had a handful of individuals who actually um, experienced a clinically meaningful change, and there's there's benchmarks for this, a clinically meaningful change in their sleep quality from baseline to three months. So uh, it is possible. And maybe what we are talking about here is that maybe not everyone in the EMS agency needs this right now when the materials are offered. Maybe it's just individuals who are really at a, a certain time point in their, their career or a certain time point in their health, their own personal health, or maybe it's a situation specific who could benefit from this time, kind of material and who perhaps would receive the best benefit from it in the end. So I think one of the key takeaways here is that if the, for the folks who adhere to protocol, we see a positive impact, maybe not clinically meaningful, but a positive impact. And that would suggest that there are subsets of individuals in EMS agencies who are perhaps uh, in need more so than others of education and training. But for those other individuals who are probably at a similar fatigue level or at least a, you know, somewhere close and who may have not benefited from this, it may take something else. It may take a combination of, of components or interventions to actually move the needle for those individuals. Yeah, and I think this is promising, right? This is the part where we're like, okay, if more study needs to be done, and, and this is a key. So I know our audience has some questions as well, and one of them is likely, well, are these modules going to be made available to the public? Or, you know, this seems like something that could be important to my EMS agency. Where should I go if I want more information on how to how to do this at my own agency? No, great questions. Um, and the modules will be made available. It was supported by federal dollars, and Thanks, therefore Pastor. it is the public's material, right? So uh, the National Association of State EMS Officials has worked with other organizations to set up hosting these materials. And I think, if I remember correctly, one of the first states to actually uh, plan on implementing uh, the availability of these materials is the state of Maine. So I think some, some states are, are jumping on this early and the materials will be available or maybe they, I, I'd actually need, I need to connect with them um, Kathy Robinson, just to double check and see if it's been released yet, but it's been a while. You know, it's been a while since 
the study has been done and the processing through, you know, getting clearance and all that kind of stuff. But yes, the materials will be available to everyone in some form on some platform. Some states may integrate it into their state level LMS. Others may not. Others may rely on private uh, resources, for example, to host these uh, pro these uh, modules. But they are and will be available. Yes. Absolutely. And we can link that in our show notes as well, along with the fatigue website for those who are interested in, you know, first of all, oh, I haven't read the fatigue guidelines. I probably should go do that. We'll make sure that those are available. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jeff, I'll turn it to you for what might be one of our last questions. I know we're rounding out the hour here and I want to be respectful of time, but this is a really fabulous discussion. So Jeff, turn it to you. Thank you. Thank you. And most important question I had before was, is this going to be shared? Are these uh, education modules going to be shared? So Great to hear that. Thank you. Looking forward to that. I was thinking just in terms of policy takeaways, both for agency leaders, EMS agency leadership, as well as students and educators. We have a lot of students and educators that are on this podcast. I was wondering if you have any advice or suggestions um, in terms of perhaps incorporating this somewhere in educational curricula, or maybe does this seem more appropriate in new hire? or perhaps as an annual um, refresher training, just if you have any thoughts sort of on where to integrate this. Um, no, great, great questions. And if you go to phase one of the fatigue project, one of the suggestions from the expert panel who came up with the recommendation about education and training is you try to incorporate sleep, health and fatigue education training as a part of the onboarding process for new hires and every couple of years at a minimum, essentially just like your uh, ACLS, PALS, et cetera, uh, format, uh, that you try to incorporate some level of, of education, some, some intervention, maybe not intervention, but maybe some sort of education and training related to these topics more frequently. And so that, that does, that, those details are tied back to the uh, 2018 evidence-based guidelines, yes. Sounds good. Oh, it's not just as simple as just checking that box once during initial ad and never have to think about it again. <laughs> thank right. you. And thanks again right. for sharing your terrific work. Definitely looking forward no, thank you. to uh, future research the next phases. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So I'm really excited about the future research and the other research that's coming out of here. We didn't talk about the text messaging and all of the other data that got collected mm. through this study. So I want our listeners to stay tuned. <laughs> Lots of opportunity to talk about sleep and EMS. Uh, I have the unpopular task of getting us out of here on time, but I do want to take a moment and talk about something that's not related to this study. And I know Dr. Patterson is too humble to bring it up himself. So, you know, the, the love for EMS research runs deep in your family. And for those who don't know, I also love EMS research. You did know that part, but uh, I was actually born in Pittsburgh. So perhaps you can say a few words before we go about the Yinzer medic. <laughs> um, so... I'm, uh, I work with the Pittsburgh Emergency Medicine Foundation, which is a small nonprofit where we uh, raise money for education, research grants, and, and materials grants. You know, we, we buy things for uh, agencies. We bought, a, for the city of Pittsburgh, we bought a, um, a Lucas device uh, uh, several years ago. So we, we try to uh, provide resources to local regional organizations. And the little Yinzer Medic thing is just one way that we try to raise funds uh, for that foundation. So no, thanks for, you know, mentioning that, uh, Dr. Crow. 
but uh, yeah, if, you, if you're interested in seeing some of that stuff, uh, feel free to go to uh, 412yenzermedic.org. Really appreciate cool work knowledge. by your son. Really appreciate <laughs> what he's doing for EMS research. I think it is a big deal and something worth checking out. So definitely do that. We'll add a link to in the notes. Uh, I do have this unenviable task of taking us out of here. But before I do, the year's not quite over and we've got some more cool research stuff coming up. So stay tuned on Friday, December 16th. We've got the best of the EMS education research in 2022. So make sure to check that out. And then we are going to have a special edition version of the podcast looking at a recently published scoping review that is examining the diversity within the EMS workforce. So a couple of things you surely won't want to miss there. I want to thank you all again for attending and for your great questions and participation. And a huge thank you to Dr. Patterson for your ongoing dedication to EMS research and for all of this important work around fatigue and EMS. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And with that, I'm going to try to carry us out to an outro video. One day I will get this awesome video right. So thank you all. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey, and ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Music